All right. Well, it is good to see you all again. What a beautiful Sunday morning. Happy Sunday to you. It's always good to see you. It's always good to celebrate communion together. I love our times of communion together. I love our times of fellowship together and worship. I love hearing the laughter and the conversations uh, all throughout the sanctuary. It's, it's just a blessing, especially when we get together around the Word of God together, too. I mean, this is the church. I love the local church. Um, I love community church for sure, but the local church in and of itself is truly amazing. Uh, I'm so thankful to the Lord for the local church, and I'm so grateful for what he's doing right here at Community Church, and he's using each and every one of you guys to do it as well. You guys are a part of this, a major part of this, and I'm just so grateful to be serving alongside you. But this morning, we're going to go ahead and try to finish up chapter 4 in the Gospel of Luke. So we're going to be covering verses 14 all the way down through verse 44. Okay, so pretty large section of scripture here this morning. But we're going to be hitting the high points of this passage. We're going to be talking about some of the major themes. Of course, we're not going to be able to cover every detail. So I would also encourage you to come and hang out with us on Wednesday nights uh, at Chris and I's house where we have our community group at 630. And that's where we take time to go a little bit deeper into the text, into the passage that I preached on Sunday. And so on Wednesdays, we go a little bit deeper. And I really like this format because it allows us to sort of keep things moving along here on Sunday mornings. Uh, We're able to cover more ground scripturally, so to speak, while at the same time, we can make sure that we are excavating the text for the truth that's in there on Wednesday nights. So In that group, we're learning how to study our Bibles. We're learning how to apply the text to our life. And so it's been very fruitful, and I hope you can join us for that. But we left off last week with the conclusion of Christ's temptation back in the wilderness. Okay, He, of course, overcame every temptation of the enemy by being filled with the Holy Spirit and then also by correctly applying the Word of God to His situation. Okay, So we should learn something here. For example... Philippians chapter 4, verse 13 is a very, very popular passage. It's quoted often, maybe second only to John 3, 16. But of course it says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's Philippians 4, 13. Now, of course, that's absolutely true. But as we learn from Christ, we need to correctly apply the scriptures to our life, right? So that text is not to be understood as hey, you know what, I think I'm going to be able to make all my free throws in tonight's game because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Christ will help me do it. Now, he may very well help you make all of those free throws, okay? but that context of that verse is very different. The context of Philippians 4.13 is about enduring in a time of suffering. That's what that verse means, okay? So it's not about hitting your free throws. It's not about hitting that winning shot at the buzzer, or as Leilani and I talk about a lot, it's not about kicking the winning touchdown, okay? We love talking about sports. It cracks us up. But before I get too off track here, I want to just have a word of prayer, and then we'll get into our text this morning. We love you, Lord. Thank you so much again for your blessing. What a beautiful morning. What a beautiful time of worship and communion together. As we enter into a time around your word, Lord, would you please have your way? Would you hide me behind the cross and speak directly to our hearts through your spirit? guiding us into all truth. And we ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen. All right, so Luke, along with the other synoptic gospel writers, which are Matthew and Mark, they begin their account of Jesus' Galilean ministry right after the temptation in the wilderness, okay? However, this would have actually taken place about a year later, most believe, okay? And would have actually been his second trip after his baptism. So thankfully... John covers most of this for us in his gospel. Okay, he covers that gap. And so if you'd like to go back and read what happened between the wilderness and what we're reading today, then go back and read the gospel of John chapters 1 through 4, at least down through verse 42 of chapter 4. But Christ, he had already called some of his disciples at this point. He had already turned water into wine at the wedding party in Cana. He had already gone to Jerusalem for Passover. He had met with Nicodemus. And then he had headed back from Judea to Galilee through Samaria, where, of course, he met the woman at Jacob's well. So obviously, a lot has already happened in the ministry life of our Lord 
before we pick up the story here in Luke's narrative today. Um, but the word had, about Christ had obviously been spreading. And so he goes back home, and that's where we pick up our story here in verse 14 of Luke chapter 4. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And news of him went out through all the surrounding region. Okay, so if you compare historians here, namely Josephus, who is a first century Jewish historian, with Reverend Selah Merrill, who was an archaeologist, who was a historian, he was the American consul to Jerusalem in the 1800s. He wrote a book called Galilee in the Time of Christ. So if you compare just those two accounts, then we find out that the region of Galilee had somewhere between 200 and 300 unique villages at this time. Josephus put a, an exact number on it at 240. So somewhere between two and 300, some of the populations in those villages reached up to 15,000 people. So that would amount to between two and three million people in an area that's the land mass of the size of between Rhode Island and Connecticut. So that's what we're talking about here in terms of first century Galilee. But as you can tell, history is not exact here on these numbers, but Galilee was very, very populated and it was where our Lord grew up, right? That's where he spent most of his public ministry as well. In fact, 25 of Jesus's 33 recorded miracles occurred in Galilee according to Easton's Bible Dictionary. Verse 15, And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Now, when it says glorified by all, that's not to mean that he was glorified as God by all. It's not to mean that he was glorified as the Messiah by all, because, of course, we know that he wasn't. So the word for glorified here that Luke uses is the Greek word doxadzo. It means to honor. It means to praise. It's where we get our word doxology from. In other words, as Jesus began his early days of teaching, people liked it. People enjoyed that. They honored him. They even praised him sometimes, right? But as we're going to see, once we get down to verse 28, that's all about to change. Verse 16, so he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up as it was, or as, excuse me, where he had been brought up and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. So we should note here that it was Jesus's custom to go to church. I love that. I mean, he was a regular there, right? It was a very important thing in his life. In fact, it was a priority. Okay. And if anyone in the history of the world ever had a good excuse, so to speak, to not go to church, it would have been Jesus. But he went anyway, didn't he? So as the gospel writer Mark would say, let the reader understand here. So we're learning something. We're learning that, man, we need to make church a priority. But the typical Sabbath day, which of course was Saturday, it was a worship service and it would go like this. It was similar in some ways to how we do it still today, but there would be an opening prayer in the synagogue. After the prayer, they would have a time of praise. And then from there, they would go into a reading of the law and they would, they would have a time of a reading from the prophets. And after those two readings, then they would have a sermon after that. And it wasn't always by the same person, by the way. And of course, we know that Jesus had attended this synagogue regularly, especially when he was growing up, right? So this was his home church, you could say. So these folks in the synagogue that day, they would have been very familiar with him. And so therefore, on this particular Sabbath day, the one who was in charge of the scrolls, the attendant, handed one over to Jesus in order for him to preach the sermon. I want us to notice here that this was not some pre-selected text that Jesus brought into the synagogue like I did this morning. I had something pre-selected. This was handed over to him, verse 17, and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Okay, so Jesus was given the scroll. Okay, that's what the book is. He was given the scroll of Isaiah to preach from. Of course, there was no chapters back in that day. There was no verses. All that was added later by translators. So Jesus would have unrolled this scroll and his eyes would have met at the place where it was written. Okay, that word found that Luke uses here, it means to meet with. So Christ's eyes met with this portion of Scripture on that scroll. And standing up to read in the synagogue, he reads this, verses 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, 
to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to, procl- to proclaim, rather, the acceptable year of the Lord. So the scripture that Jesus just read is from what we know as Isaiah chapter 61. Okay, and he read from what we know as verses 1 and a portion of verse 2. Hang on to that. I'm going to talk more about that in a minute. He didn't read all of verse 2. Look at verse 20. Then he closed the book, or he rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. So, after standing up to read, Jesus now rolled up the scroll. He handed it back, and he sat down to teach. But I want you to notice something that even before Jesus begins his lesson, I mean, he had only been reading from the scroll at this point. The word of God, yes. But the eyes of all who were in the synagogue, the word says, that day were fixed on him. They were fixed on him. Something was different. I mean, the scripture reading today hit a little bit different than it normally does. There was power. There was authority, right? I don't know. Maybe it was the way he presented it. We're we're not sure. Okay, we don't know. But guys, listen, when you read the Holy Scriptures yourself, don't read them like you read every other book. Don't read it like that. Read it like it's the very word of God. Read it like it's God breathed, right? Read it like it's Holy Spirit inspired because it is. It is. Read this book like your life depends on it. Like you can't live without it, right? Because it does, and you can't. In other words, so fix yourself on the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like those who were in the synagogue that day, when the word of life himself, the very word of life, breathed out his own word from the page of that scroll. Amazing. So when you read the Bible or you hear it taught, fix your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21. And he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That is incredible. (laughs) That is amazing. I mean, can you imagine sitting in church on that Sabbath morning when Jesus said that? Wow. Jesus just said to them, guys, I just read to you from the scriptures about me. About me. Prophecy has been fulfilled this morning before your very eyes. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. I am the anointed one, and I am here to preach. I'm the one that's here to proclaim. Absolutely incredible. He just told the good people of his hometown in that synagogue, I am the Messiah. You see, this passage from Isaiah was commonly thought of as a messianic passage. Because in the acceptable year of the Lord was when the Messiah was supposed to return. That was going to happen in the acceptable year of the Lord. And Jesus just said, I'm here. I'm here. I'm going to talk more about the spiritual implications for us about what Jesus said in a minute. But for now, let's look at verse 22. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? So this verse implies that that Jesus actually said more than what Luke records here in verse 21. I think it's safe to say. I don't think it's a stretch to say that Jesus' message was longer than one sentence. Right? All of the words the Bible says that he spoke were gracious. So everyone marveled at them. I bet they did. I mean, Jesus just said a mouthful right here. I'm sure they needed a minute to process what was going on. But after that happens, then somebody pipes up in the crowd and says, Hey, isn't this Joseph's son? Of course, for all they knew, he was. I mean, he wasn't. We know that, right? But for all they knew, he was. They knew that Jesus had grown up in Joseph's house. They knew that, that he was the son of a humble carpenter. I mean, some of these people may have taught Jesus in Sunday school back in the day, right? Some of them are probably sitting over there going, I don't know, this guy here, isn't that Joseph's son? Wouldn't he the guy that we used to have in children's church? We'd watch him herd all the animals into the ark and put them up on our flannel graph. Isn't that the same kid? They couldn't believe it. It's very interesting. But these folks, they wanted a magician. They didn't want the Messiah. So... Of course, Christ knows their heart. 
And he, he knew their hearts. And so he says this in verse 23. He said, you will surely say this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. So you see, they weren't tracking. You can see that clearly by what Jesus said in his response. I mean, the word was out. They had heard about all of the miracles that he had been doing. And so what they wanted was some of those miracles themselves, right? They wanted the miracles, not the Messiah. So Jesus obviously knew their hearts and he called them out for this. Instead of them saying, Jesus, Messiah, come and heal me. They would soon be saying, physician, heal yourself. What does that remind you of? You can just hear the crowd at the cross, can't you? You can hear the crowd at the cross. If you are the son of God, save yourself. Come down from that cross. Mark 15, 30. You know, everybody wants a miracle, but few people want a Messiah. Verse 24. Then he said, assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. That's right. Ministry is hardest at home. Maybe you've experienced that yourself in your own life after coming to Christ by faith, right? Many times the very hardest ones to reach are the ones that are closest to you, including your family and your friends, those people that really know you, the ones who grew up with you. Sometimes they're the hardest ones to reach. Many times they just can't believe that you're the same person that they used to know, right? And the truth is, if you belong to Christ, if you're walking with him, you're not. You're not the same. Of course you're not the same person you've been born again you've been bought back you've been made new by the lord jesus christ i mean you've been restored and rescued and redeemed completely covered in the blood of our lord jesus christ i mean how could anyone ever be the same after that but here's the deal jealousy often reigns in the hearts of the religious therefore jesus he gives them an illustration of god's grace to everybody to all people that they would certainly understand. They would have heard about this. Look at verses 25 through 27. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Verse 27, and many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet. And none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So in order to illustrate both God's sovereignty and his love and provision for all people, Jesus reminds his hometown folks of the stories of Elijah and Elisha. He knew exactly what was in their hearts. And so if you'd like to go back and refresh yourself on these stories, you can do that in 1 Kings chapter 17 and 2 Kings chapter 5. But I'll give you just the Cliff Notes version of it. God sent Elijah to a Gentile widow to provide for him during the famine that was going on during the time, that time in Israel. So God sent this Gentile widow. I mean, he could have used any number of widows in Israel at the time. There's no doubt about that, right? But he didn't. He chose to use one from Sidon. But then God also sent Elisha to heal a Gentile leper who, by the way, was a commander in the Syrian army that had captured a young Israelite girl during one of their raids, right? And as Jesus mentioned, look, God could have chosen to heal any or all of the lepers in Israel at that time, but he didn't. So what his, what's the point? What's going on here? Well, I really like how G. Kemble Morgan sums it up. He says, Jesus declared to them that the benefits and the blessings of the divine kingdom were coming in an answer to faith and not in an answer to racial relationships. That's exactly right. God's love and provision for all people has always been the case, always throughout history, right? We come to Christ by grace through faith, and that's each and every one of us, okay? And of course, the religious Jews, they have always struggled with this. This becomes a problem for them, verses 28 and 29. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, they were filled with wrath. Man, it wasn't two seconds ago they were loving every word he said. Now they're filled with wrath and they rose up and thrust him out of the city and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built that they might throw him down over the cliff. So what was about to happen was a stoning. 
typically before someone got stoned, at least it was common for them to be thrown off of a high place, off of a cliff. Of course, they would get injured and not be able to run away, and they would get stoned to death. So clearly, these people understood what Jesus was saying now. They weren't, <laughs> there was no doubt. Jesus told them, I'm the Messiah, and now they get it. Now they get it. They got the illustration. Not only was Jesus proclaiming to be their Messiah, he basically just told them that even though you reject me, the Gentiles will not. And of course, again, that didn't set well with these folks. The word says that they were filled with wrath at this point. But remember, we talked about this. Christ was filled with the Spirit. So you can see the difference here. But religion... Religion has always looked at blasphemy through the lens of legalism. Okay, you can read about some of that in Mark 14, 64. While the Bible describes blasphemy as someone without faith, Matthew 12, 31. So who are the ones really committing blasphemy here? Verse 30. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Now, if you think about it, this could have been an accurate demonstration, an accurate fulfillment, rather, of Psalm 91, had Christ wanted it to be, right? I mean, Jesus could have allowed himself to be thrown off that cliff, just like Satan had tempted him to do. You know, and the angels will bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. This would have been a perfect op opportunity for that, right? Go ahead, get thrown off the cliff. The angels will bear you up. They'll keep you from dashing your foot against a, st a stone. Satan had tempted him to do that at the top of the temple back in chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. But here's what the Word of God says. The Word says that Jesus went His way. Jesus went His way, and He passed through the midst of them. Guys, Scripture is clear. God's ways are not our ways. They are not, Isaiah 55, 8. But I wonder... How many of us are still waiting for a sign? How many of us are still waiting for a miracle from God when Christ is passing right through the midst of us? Christ has the power to perform any miracle at any time. And we're going to see some of those as we move through the gospel. But oftentimes, guys, it is his pleasure to pass within our midst. Pass within our midst. Oftentimes, it is his pleasure to preach the gospel to the poor to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, right? And for those who simply take him at his word, and we just believe what he says, we believe that he is who he says he is. In other words, if we have faith, that's enough. That's enough. Okay, that's what he's looking for. But for those who are only looking for a miracle, then what Jesus says is never going to be enough. It'll never be enough, right? If you're only looking for someone or if you're only looking for some sort of outward change, right, to your situation by way of a miracle, you're never going to be satisfied with the inward change of your Savior. Never. In fact, the response to Christ that faith requires of you, it might be exactly what you don't want to hear. And I think that was certainly the case with those who were in the synagogue in Nazareth that day. And so the same is true with us, right? It's the same is true for us as it was for them, if we reject Christ, and of course we're free to do that, then he's not going to force us to believe, just like they tried to force him off that cliff. No, what's he going to do? He's going to move on, pass through our midst, and move on to someone who will believe. Verses 31 and 32. Then he went down to Capernaum, a city in Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbaths. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. Now Matthew, if you read his account, he tells us that Christ actually dwelt there. That's Matthew 4.13. And that means that Christ actually moved his home from Nazareth to Capernaum now. Okay, So he came to his own first in Nazareth. Of course, they rejected him. And so now he sets up his ministry headquarters, so to speak, in the city of Capernaum, which was about 20 miles to the northeast on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. But as you read ahead here in this passage... You get to verses 31 through 41. And we should note here that that's the story of one Sabbath day in the life of Christ. Those verses there, 11 verses, is, it constitutes one Sabbath day. So in the morning, he's going to visit the synagogue. In the afternoon, he's going to go and visit Simon Peter's house. In the evening, he's going to hit the streets. And then down in verses 42 through 44, we see him depart into a desert place which was, as Mark tells us, 
a long while before daylight. That's Mark 1.35. So Christ needed some solitude after a full day of ministry. But I want us to notice the priorities in the life of Christ here. First, he's going to attend church, right? He's going to spend time with the people of God, which establishes the importance of God's word. It establishes the importance of fellowshipping with his people. So he goes to church. After he goes to church, he then attends the home of a friend, doesn't he? He spends time with a family, all right, which is, of course, the pillar of society, and it was created by God. So Jesus is establishing the importance of personal fellowship. He's establishing the importance of a healthy family here. After that, he takes to the streets. I love that part. Because after church... And after spending time with a a family in their home for lunch, he hits the streets and he goes and spends time with the public at large, right? This, of course, establishes the importance of meeting the needs of the community and meeting the needs of the world around us, right? So what we're learning here is this. What I just described to you, these priorities, that's the mission and ministry purpose of God. That's it. Okay, this gives us a perfect blueprint for our life as well. We can make these our priority as well, right? God first, family second, the world around us third, while at the same time, always recognizing that constant need to get away and spend alone time with our Father, just like Jesus did. We need to get to that deserted place, that time where we can spend one-on-one time with the Lord. Right? Because we run out of strength to serve him quickly if we don't spend time with him daily. So we need to keep this application in mind as we go through these verses. Look at verses 33 and 34. Now in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice saying, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So Jesus, of course, he spoke with authority back back in verse 32. But as the demons knew, Christ himself was the authority. Christ is the authority, right? Of course, demons have absolutely nothing to do with Christ, and he has absolutely nothing to do with them. So their question is invalid, but they knew that he had the authority, that he was the authority, that he was the power to destroy them. That's for sure. Because the destiny of every demon is destruction. And therefore, what they do, whatever it is that they do, is destructive, right? Remember, Satan had already tried to destroy the ministry of Jesus back in the wilderness, right? Of course, he was unsuccessful in doing that. And we see evidence of that here. And I love this part. We see evidence that Christ was untouched by the temptations of Satan in the wilderness by how this unclean spirit addresses him here. That unclean spirit from the underworld said this, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. That's right. What does that tell us? That Christ was still holy, uncorrupted, undefiled by temptation or sin of any kind. He was free from it, verses 35 and 36. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him in their midst, it came out of him and did not hurt him. Then they were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, What a word this is. For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. So Jesus displayed his authority in both his teaching and his actions. Okay? All power and all authority belongs to Christ then, now, and forever. But as we're going to see as we move through the the gospel of Luke here, amazingly, Christ gives this same power and this same authority to his disciples. We'll we'll study that when we get to Luke chapter 9. It's pretty amazing. Verses 37 and 39 through 39. And the report about him went out into every place in the surrounding region, Now he arose from the synagogue and entered Simon's house. But Simon's wife's mother was sick with a high fever, and they made request of him concerning her. So he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose and served them. 
So even though Christ's popularity was growing, I mean, the report was going out everywhere, as we read, he still made time for family after church. And here we find that Simon Peter's mother-in-law was, was very sick. I mean, Luke, being the good doctor that he was, tells us that she had a high fever. Typically, there were two classifications for fever back then, either low or high. So she had the high one. She was very sick. Luke also tells us that he stood over her. So scholars will tell us that Luke uses a lot of medical terminology right here in this passage, and uh, for good reason. But Luke says he stood over her. If you read the gospel account of Matthew, he tells us that he also touched her hand. So Jesus comes to Peter's sick mother-in-law, stands over her, and touches her hand according to Scripture. Now, you'll have to forgive me here because I can't help myself, but clearly he wasn't standing six feet away with a mask on. Okay. Christ didn't fear the fever. He rebuked it. He rebuked it. He comes near it. He touches those with infirmities and he makes them whole again. He makes them well. Christ has the power over the natural world, meaning the fever, just like he has the power over the underworld, meaning the demon. Christ is the power. But notice here that the miracle at the synagogue in Capernaum earlier that day, it was also a very public miracle, wasn't it? A lot of people saw that. Jesus cast out the demon in front of everybody there. However, right here, we see him privately heal Peter's mother-in-law. It tells us that Christ didn't come to please the crowds. He's always been careful to please his heavenly father. You see, Christ was the same in public as he was in private. Most definitely. In other words, he had no pretense about him. Okay? He didn't put on airs. He actually practiced what he preached. I mean, what a lesson for us to learn in the American church today, right? I mean, this should serve as a warning for all of the pastors out there who are trying to gain favor by being crowd pleasers. It should serve as a warning to all those who attend churches that teach like that, right? Because the fault is twofold. It's the fake preacher's fault and it's the phony crowd's fault. Don't let that happen. Both are responsible. Don't be that preacher and don't be in that crowd. Guard against that. In other words, be authentic. Let's just be authentic Christians, authentic believers, and let's learn from the life of our Savior. But I really like the last sentence there in verse 39. It says, And immediately she arose and served them. That's pretty amazing. Okay, it's interesting because high fevers tend to do something to our bodies, zap our strength, right? Completely. They make us unable to do anything, especially if you're a guy and you have a cold, you can't move for like two weeks. You're out. But especially a high fever, it zaps your strength. I mean, you can't do anything, much less get up immediately and begin to serve. Right? But look here. Not only can Jesus Christ heal our physical sickness, he can also heal our spiritual sickness. He can restore our strength that we might begin to serve him. Look, Jesus didn't just take away the fever. He also gave her back strength. It's amazing. It's amazing. The Lord is good. He not only takes our infirmities, he gives us strength to serve. And I really am grateful for that. He can restore our strength and I love her response. You know, she got her strength back. She got her fever taken away. And um, her, her response was very selfless. She served after that. And that's because Christ didn't save us so that we can live a life of selfish indulgence. Not at all. He saved us so that we will serve him. So our right response when Christ heals us from anything, whether it's physical or spiritual, our response, our right response is to serve him. That's how we respond. And I think to those who have truly been saved, I think we desire, we should desire to serve, right? Because not only will he remove our sin and our sickness, he's going to give us the strength that we need to serve him every day. Verse 40, when the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. 
So just as the Sabbath day would begin at sunset on Friday, the Sabbath day would end at sunset on Saturday, and a new day would begin here, okay, technically, right? And so now what that means is all of the ritual restrictions had now been lifted, and these people were free to, quote-unquote, work. In other words, they could bring people to Jesus. That would have been a work. They couldn't do it before. Now they can. So they bring these people to Christ. They bring their sick friends and their family for healing. And of course, Jesus, he didn't turn anybody away. He laid his hands, the word says, on every one of them. Guys, Christ is a very personal Savior. The word says that he healed them. That's because Christ is a very compassionate Savior. He is both personal and he is compassionate. G. Campbell Morgan writes, He imposed no conditions upon them. He did not inquire about their family life. He asked nothing about their past history. He healed without any reference to anything in them but need. How beautiful. Amen. And that's true for you and me too. Look, come to Christ as you are, as you are, he will make you clean. Verse 41, and demons also came out of many crying out saying, you are the Christ, the son of God. And he rebuking them did not allow them to speak for they knew that he was the Christ. You know, we read from Isaiah 53 during our time of worship this morning. And verse four in Isaiah chapter 53 says, Christ carried our sorrows which means, of course, he was also afflicted, right? He carried our sorrows. He carried our burdens. And that's because sickness and sorrow, guys, they're both alive and well in this world today, thanks to our sin. They're alive and well. So I think something important for us to understand here is that Christ at his cross, he atoned for sin, not sickness. Okay, here's what I mean by that. Our sin is carried away. That's what the word atoned means. It means to carry away. Christ atoned for our sins at his cross. But sickness remains, doesn't it? You see, Christ carried our sickness and sorrows while he was here, and he carried away our sin at the cross. There's a big difference. He knew sickness and sorrow just like we do, but he did not know sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us, according to 2 Corinthians 5.21. And frankly, the time, it wasn't time yet for all of this truth to be out there, okay? It wasn't time for it to be revealed yet. And although the demons knew that Jesus was in fact the Christ, demonic testimony is never ever to be trusted. So Christ closed their mouth. And of course, God, he has a different way that he's wanting to get his word out. He doesn't need the truth of who Jesus is proclaimed by a bunch of yammering demons. No, he has another way. Soon Jesus is going to entrust the gospel message to you and me, people who have followed him by faith. That's who he's going to charge to get the message of the gospel out. Verse 42, now when it was day, he departed and went, went, went into a deserted place and the crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. And so again, Mark chapter 1 verse 35 tells us that Jesus had already risen a long while before daylight. Okay? And that he had went out, he had departed to a solitary place, Mark says, and there he prayed. Christ needed to be alone with his father after a very long and very full day of ministry. So please don't neglect your quiet time with God either, right? You need it. Christ needed it. You need it. I need it. We all need it every single day, right? Things are going to happen throughout the course of our day, right? People are going to make demands on our time. The crowd's going to seek us. There'll be texts, emails, phone calls, whatever. We all know what that's like, but we need to learn from Jesus here and protect our alone time with God. Protect it. Make it a priority in your life. Meet with God before you try to meet the demands of your day. Verses 43 through 44. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose I've been sent. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. So after gaining new strength, 
Again, from time spent alone with his heavenly father, Jesus pressed on in his preaching ministry here. He began the day before in church, again, emphasizing the need for obedience in his religion. In other words, in his relationship with his father. It establishes the importance of that, going to church. Then he went to the home, which of course emphasized the need for healing in the family. Christ healed the family. Then he goes to the streets, which again emphasized the need for healing in our community. Guys, this community that God has put us in needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. They need the healing touch of our Savior. It's up to us to get that good news to them. But then lastly, he got alone with his heavenly father and he prayed, of course, emphasizing the need for quiet communion with God. So I hope that you can see how all of this stuff applies to our life as well. But I want to close our message today by talking about those spiritual applications that I mentioned earlier about this text. The spiritual application of what Jesus taught to those folks who were in the synagogue that day back in his hometown of Nazareth in verses 18 and 19. Because Jesus, he claimed to be the anointed, spirit-filled man in those passages from Isaiah. He said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And therefore, it was Jesus who had been sent to preach the gospel to the poor. It was Jesus who was sent to heal the brokenhearted. It was Christ who was sent to proclaim liberty to the captives and to recover the sight of the blind. It's Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Now, some of you, when you take this home and you study it later, you're going to find out as you read through the the Isaiah passage in Isaiah 61 that there's no mention of recovery of the sight of the blind in that passage from Isaiah. But Jesus said that. So that tells us that he was likely quoting from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It was written during the intertestamental periods between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. So it's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's in that one. So Jesus was likely quoting from that. But he continued on and he said that I'm the one that was sent to set at liberty all those who are oppressed and that I would be the one to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Look, Jesus was not ever bashful about his messianic nature. He was telling them. Now, When he said this, the Jews would have likely, most likely, understood the acceptable year of the Lord to mean the year of Jubilee. That's how they would have understood that, okay? So if we need to go back and and research the year of Jubilee, you can do so in Leviticus chapter 25, right? So here's the deal with this year of Jubilee. After each set of 49 years, on the Day of Atonement, in, in the 50th year, It was to be consecrated as a year of jubilee, right? 49 years, you got the 50th. On the Day of Atonement, it's consecrated as the year of jubilee. And this was done at the sound of the trumpet of jubilee, okay? So when that trumpet sounded in the jubilee year, several things would happen. Possessions that had been borrowed were returned. Families that had been scattered all over the place were gathered back together. There was to be no sowing. There was to be no reaping because all of the work had already been done. All oppression ceased and the fear of the Lord increased during this time. Debts were forgiven. Properties and possessions, they were all redeemed. And guys, slaves were set free during this year. Listen, Jesus is saying, I'm here to do that. I am here to do that. Soon, I'm going to lay down my life and I'm going to shed my blood in atonement for your sins. And the good news of the gospel will be preached to the poor because sin has impoverished every single one of us. But blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, according to Matthew 5, 3. So Jesus is saying, look, I will mend the broken heart that your sin has shattered. I will mend it. I will set you free. You're a slave to your sin, and I will set you free. I will open your eyes. You've been blinded by your sin. I can give you new life through my cross. 
Jesus is saying, I will set you free from the bondage of your sin. Not only can I atone for it, carry it away, I can set you free from the bondage of it. Set you free from the daily struggle of it. It's the acceptable year of the Lord. It's the year of Jubilee. Jesus said, I'm here to do these things. I can set you free. Listen, he's saying to all of us, this is the acceptable year of the Lord. Let me put it to you another way. Today is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Guys, please don't put off surrendering your life to Christ one more minute. Don't do it. If you have never repented of your sins and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone to save you, then please do that now. I want to encourage you to do it today, right now. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 15 says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. That's exactly right. The acceptable year of the Lord is here. The time for salvation is today. This is an age of grace that we're living in right now. I hope you know that. But it's not going to last forever. Okay? Remember what I told you about Jesus when he was quoting in Isaiah 61. We know that as the first two verses, but he stopped in the middle of verse 2. He didn't quote the rest of that, right? He stopped. Why? Because there's something else that our Lord will one day do and proclaim and perform, and that's the day of vengeance, according to Isaiah. That's what the rest of that verse says. You see, one day Jesus Christ will return to this messed up sinful world that increasingly hates him and set all things right. He stopped quoting at that comma in the text to let us know that we can find forgiveness and redemption and freedom today. Today. Guys, it is the year of Jubilee. Christ has atoned for your sin. There's no more work to be done. He done it all. And he's offering you salvation. He's offering whosoever will may come and drink from the water of life freely. So will you come? Listen, almost 2,000 years have passed since Christ stopped quoting at that comma. Almost 2,000 years, more than that. But time is still ticking. It's still ticking. But I'm here to tell you, the day of vengeance will not be delayed forever. It won't. It's coming. So we have this moment. We have this breath that's in our lungs right now. We're not promised another one. So we need to take advantage of this grace that has been offered to us today and come to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, surrendering our life to him completely and totally today and forevermore. Come to Christ as you are and he will heal you. He will set you free from the bondage of sin. He will give you new life in Christ that will last for all of eternity. All of eternity. It is the acceptable year of the Lord. Today is the day of salvation. It is the year of jubilee. Father, we love you and thank you so much for this time around your word. Thank you for such a powerful passage of scripture where we read the account of you standing up in the synagogue that day proclaiming the truth of that passage as your own. And Lord, the ramifications have gone down through the centuries and they're still true for us today. Because we know that you are the one who sets the captives free. You are the one who forgives all of the debts. You are the one who brings families back together. You are the ones who sets slaves free. You're the one who sets sinners free from the bondage of their sin. There's no more need to work because you have completed the work at your cross. It is the year of Jubilee. It's the age of grace. It's the day of salvation. And you've provided that for us through your cross. And we thank you for that. My prayer, Lord, is that if anyone has never come to you, come to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, repenting of their sins and trusting in you alone for their salvation. I pray they would do that now, not wait another moment. Today is the day of salvation. My prayer is that they would believe that you are the perfect, sinless son of God who came to this world and died on a cross, laying down your life, 
shedding your own blood for their sins, and then taking that life up again in the miraculous resurrection so that they can have hope, eternal hope in you if they would put their faith in you today. Lord, there there may be lives that need to be restored. There may be brothers and sisters out there who have been away for 49 years. Maybe they need to come home during this year of Jubilee. I pray that they would do that. If you've been away from the Lord for a while, come home. Come back to Jesus. Come home to the Father through Jesus Christ your Lord. He will forgive you. You are loved by him. Come home. Lord, during this time of response that we have now, please continue to work in our hearts. Just have your way. Lord, we don't want to leave the same. We want to be different. We want to be more like Jesus. So Lord, would you not only take away our infirmities like you did Peter's mother-in-law, but would you give us the strength that we need to serve you this day and every day. Help us to be the same in private as we are in public. As you've taught us in your word today, help us to be authentic Christians. We don't have to be embarrassed of our need. We just need to come. You will give us the strength we need to serve. You will forgive us of our trespasses. You're good. So, Lord, our hope and our faith is in you alone today. Please have your way as we look for your help, as we look forward to your return. Please prepare our hearts for home. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.